Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and the Beasts of Tarzan. Today, chapters 9 and 10. Chapter 9 switches now to the point of view of Jane Clayton. Chapter 9. Chapter 9. Chivalry or Villainy. From her cabin port upon the Kincaid, Jane Clayton had seen her husband rowed to the verdure-clad shore of Jungle Island, and then the ship once more proceeded upon its way. For several days she saw no one other than Sven Anderson, the Kincaid's taciturn and repellent cook. She asked him the name of the shore upon which her husband had been set. "'I tank it blow purty soon purty hard,' replied the Swede, and that was all she could get out of him. She had come to the conclusion that he spoke no other English, and so she ceased to importune him for information, but never did she forget to greet him pleasantly or to thank him for the hideous, nauseating meals he brought her. Three days from the spot where Tarzan had been marooned, the Kincaid came to anchor in the mouth of a great river, and presently Rokoff came to Jane Clayton's cabin. "'We have arrived, my dear,' he said, with a sickening leer. "'I've come to offer you safety, liberty, and ease.' "'My heart has been softened toward you in your suffering, "'and I would make amends as best I may. "'Your husband was a brute. "'You know that best who found him naked in his native jungle, "'roaming wild with the savage beasts that were his fellows. "'Now I am a gentleman, not only born of noble blood, "'but raised gently as befits a man of quality. "'To you, dear Jane, I offer the love of a cultured man "'and association with one of culture and refinement.' "'which you must have sorely missed in your relations with the poor ape "'that through your girlish infatuation you married so thoughtlessly. "'I love you, Jane. "'You have but to say the word, and no further sorrow shall afflict you. "'Even your baby shall be returned to you unharmed.' "'Outside the door, Sven Anderson paused with the noonday meal "'he had been carrying to Lady Greystoke. "'Upon the end of his long, stringy neck, his little head was cocked to one side. "'His close-set eyes were half-closed, his ears, so expressive was his whole attitude of stealthy eavesdropping, seemed truly to be cocked forward. Even his long, yellow, straggly mustache appeared to assume a sly droop. As Rokoff closed his appeal, awaiting the reply he invited, the look of surprise upon Jane Clayton's face turned to one of disgust. She fairly shuddered in the fellow's face. "'I would not have been surprised, Monsieur Rokoff,' she said, "'had you attempted to force me to submit your evil desires.' "'but that you should be so fatuous as to believe that I, "'wife of John Clayton, would come to you willingly, "'even to save my life, I should never have imagined. "'I have known you for a scoundrel, Monsieur Rokoff, "'but until now I had not taken you for a fool.' "'Rokoff's eyes narrowed, "'and the red of mortification flushed out the pallor of his face. "'He took a step toward the girl threateningly. "'We shall see who is the fool at last,' he hissed. "'and your plebeian Yankee stubbornness has cost you all that you hold dear, "'even the life of your baby, by the bones of St. Peter. "'I'll forget all that I had planned for the brat "'and cut its heart out before your very eyes. "'You'll learn what it means to insult Nicholas Rokoff.' "'Jane Clayton turned wearily away. "'What is the use,' she said, "'of expatiating upon the depths to which your vengeful nature can sink? "'You cannot move me either by threats or deeds.' My baby cannot judge yet for himself, but I, his mother, can foresee that should it have been given him to survive to man's estate, he would willingly sacrifice his life for the honor of his mother. Love him as I do, I would not purchase his life at such a price. Did I, he would execrate my memory to the day of his death. 
Rokoff was now thoroughly angered because of his failure to reduce the girl to terror. He felt only hate for her, but it had come to his diseased mind that if he could force her to accede to his demands as the price of her life and her child's, the cup of his revenge would be filled to brimming when he could flaunt the wife of Lord Greystoke in the capitals of Europe as his mistress. Again he stepped closer to her. His evil face was convulsed with rage and desire. Like a wild beast he sprang upon her, and with his strong fingers at her throat, "'forced her backward upon the berth. "'At the same instant the door of the cabin opened noisily. "'Rokoff leaped to his feet, and turning, faced the Swede cook. "'Into the fellow's usually foxy eyes had come an expression of utter stupidity. "'His lower jaw drooped in vacuous harmony. "'He busied himself on arranging Lady Greystoke's meal "'upon the tiny table at one side of her cabin. "'The Russian glared at him. "'What do you mean?' he cried. "'By entering here without permission!' "'Get out!' "'The cook turned his watery blue eyes upon Rokoff "'and smiled vacuously. "'I tank you blow pretty soon, pretty hard,' he said, "'and then he began rearranging a few dishes upon the little table. "'Get out of here, or I'll throw you out, "'you miserable blockhead!' roared Rokoff, "'taking a threatening step toward the Swede. "'Anderson continued to smile foolishly in his direction.' but one ham-like paw slid stealthily to the handle of the long, slim knife that protruded from the greasy cord supporting his soiled apron. Rokoff saw the move and stopped short in his advance. Then he turned toward Jane Clayton. "'I will give you until tomorrow,' he said, "'to reconsider your answer to my offer. All will be sent ashore upon one pretext or another except you and the child, Pulvich, and myself. Then, without interruption,' "'you will be able to witness the death of the baby.' "'He spoke in French that the cook might not understand "'the sinister portent of his words. "'When he had done, he banged out of the cabin "'without another look at the man who had interrupted him "'in his sorry work. "'When he had gone, Sven Anderson turned toward Lady Greystoke. "'The idiotic expression that had masked his thoughts had fallen away, "'and in its place was one of craft and cunning. "'Hey, Tank, I been a fool. "'He been the fool. "'I savvy French.' "'Jane Clayton looked at him in surprise. "'You understood all that he said, then?' "'Anderson grinned. "'You bet,' he said. "'And you heard what was going on in here, "'and came to protect me?' "'You been good to me,' explained the Swede. "'Hey, treat me like dirty dog. "'I help you, lady. "'You just wait. "'I help you. "'I been vast coast lots times.' "'But how can you help me, Sven?' she asked. "'when all these men will be against us.' "'I tank,' said Sven Anderson. "'It blow pretty soon, pretty hard.' "'And then he turned and left the cabin. "'Though Jane Clayton doubted the cook's ability "'to be of any material service to her, "'she was nevertheless deeply grateful to him "'for what he had already done. "'The feeling that among these enemies "'she had one friend brought the first ray of comfort "'that had come to lighten the burden "'of her miserable apprehensions "'throughout the long voyage of the Kincaid.' She saw no more of Rokoff that day, nor of any other, until Sven came with her evening meal. She tried to draw him into conversation relative to his plans to aid her, but all that she could get from him was a stereotyped prophecy as to the future state of the wind. He seemed suddenly to have relapsed into his wanted state of dense stupidity. However, when he was leaving her cabin a little later with the empty dishes, he whispered very low, "'Leave on your clothes and roll up your blankets. I come back for you, party soon.' He would have slipped from the room at once, but Jane laid her hand upon his sleeve. "'My baby,' she asked. "'I cannot go without him.' "'You do what I tell you,' 
said Anderson, scowling. "'I've been helping you, so don't you get too funny.' When he had gone, Jane Clayton sank down upon her berth in utter bewilderment. What was she to do? Suspicions as to the intentions of the Swede swarmed her brain. Might she not be infinitely worse off if she gave herself into his power than she already was? No, she could be no worse off in company with the devil himself than with Nicholas Rokoff, for the devil at least bore a reputation of being a gentleman. She swore a dozen times that she would not leave the Kincaid without her baby, and yet she remained clothed long past her usual hour for retiring, and her blankets were neatly rolled and bound with stout cord, when about midnight there came a stealthy scratching upon the panels of her door. Swiftly she crossed the room and drew the bolt. Softly the door swung open to admit the muffled figure of the Swede. On one arm he carried a bundle, evidently his blankets. His other hand was raised in a gesture commanding silence, a grimy forefinger upon his lips. He came quite close to her. "'Carry this,' he said. "'Do not make noise when you see it. It is your kid.' Quick hand snatched the bundle from the cook, and hungry mother arms folded the sleeping infant to her breast, while hot tears of joy ran down her cheeks, and her whole frame shook with the emotion of the moment. "'Come,' said Anderson. "'We got no time to waste.' He snatched up her bundle of blankets, and outside the cabin door, his own as well. Then he led her to the ship's side, steadied her descent of the monkey ladder, holding the child for her as she climbed to the waiting boat below. A moment later he had cut the rope that held the small boat to the steamer's side, and— bending silently to the muffled oars, was pulling toward the black shadows up the Ugambi River. Anderson rode on as though quite sure of his ground, and when after half an hour the moon broke through the clouds that was revealed upon their left the mouth of a tributary running into the Ugambi. Up this narrow channel the Swede turned the prow of the small boat. Jane Clayton wondered if the man knew where he was bound. She did not know that in his capacity as a cook he had that day been rowed up this very stream to a little village where he had bartered with the natives for such provisions as they had for sale, and that he had there arranged the details of his plan for the adventure upon which they were now setting forth. Even though the moon was full, the surface of the small river was quite dark. The giant trees overhung its narrow banks, meeting in a great arch above the center of the river. Spanish moss dropped from the gracefully bending limbs, and enormous creepers clambered in riotous profusion from the ground to the loftiest branch falling in curving loops almost to the water's placid breast. Now and then the river's surface would be suddenly broken ahead of them by a huge crocodile, startled by the splashing of the oars, or, snorting and blowing, a family of hippos would dive from a sandy bar to the cool, safe depths of the bottom. From the dense jungles upon either side came the weird night cries of the carnivora, the maniacal voice of the hyena, the coughing grunt of the panther, the deep and awful roar of the lion, and with them strange, uncanny notes that the girl could not ascribe to any particular night prowler, more terrible because of their mystery. Huddled in the stern of the boat, she sat with her baby strained close to her bosom, and because of that little, tender, helpless thing, she was happier tonight than she'd been for many a sorrow-ridden day. Even though she knew not to what fate she was going, or how soon that fate might overtake her, still was she happy and thankful for the moment, however brief, that she might press her baby tightly in her arms. She could scarce wait for the coming of the day that she might look again upon the bright face of her little, black-eyed Jack. Again and again she tried to strain her eyes through the blackness of the jungle night to have but a tiny peep at those beloved features, but only the dim outline of the baby's face rewarded her efforts. Then once more she would cuddle the warm, little bundle close to her throbbing heart. 
It must have been close to three o'clock in the morning that Anderson brought the boat's nose to the shore before a clearing where could be dimly seen in the waning moonlight a cluster of native huts encircled by a thorn boma. At the village gate they were admitted by a native woman, the wife of the chief whom Anderson had paid to assist him. She took them to the chief's hut, but Anderson said that they would sleep without upon the ground, and so, her duty having been completed, she left them to their own devices. The Swede, after explaining in his gruff way that the huts were doubtless filthy and vermin-ridden, spread Jane's blankets on the ground for her, and at a little distance unrolled his own and lay down to sleep. It was some time before the girl could find a comfortable position upon the hard ground, but at last, the baby in the hollow of her arm, she dropped asleep from utter exhaustion. When she awoke, it was broad daylight. About her were clustered a score of curious natives, mostly men, for among the aborigines it is the male who owns this characteristic in its most exaggerated form. Instinctively, Jane Clayton drew the baby more closely to her, though she soon saw that the natives were far from intending her or the child any harm. In fact, one of them offered her a gourd of milk, a filthy, smoke-begrimed gourd with the ancient rind of long curdled milk caked in layers within its neck. But the spirit of the giver touched her deeply, and her face lightened for a moment with one of those almost forgotten smiles of radiance that had helped to make her beauty famous both in Baltimore and London. She took the gourd in one hand, and rather than cause the giver pain, raised it to her lips, though for the life of her she could scarce restrain the qualm of nausea that surged through her as the malodorous thing approached her nostrils. It was Anderson who came to her rescue, and taking the gourd from her, drank a portion himself, and then returned it to the native with a gift of blue beads. The sun was shining brightly now, and though the baby still slept, Jane could scarce restrain her impatient desire to have at least a brief glance at the beloved face. The natives had withdrawn at a command from their chief, who now stood talking with Anderson, a little apart from her. As she debated the wisdom of risking disturbing the child's slumber by lifting the blanket that now protected its face from the sun, she noted that the cook conversed with the chief in the language of the native. What a remarkable man the fellow was indeed! She had thought him ignorant and stupid, but a short day before, and now, within the past twenty-four hours, she had learned that he spoke not only English, but French as well, and the primitive dialect of the West Coast. She had thought him shifty, cruel, and untrustworthy, yet insofar as she had reason to believe he had proved himself in every way the contrary since the day before. It scarce seemed credible that he could be serving her from motives purely chivalrous. There must be something deeper in his intentions and plans than he had yet disclosed. She wondered, and when she looked at him, at his close-set, shifty eyes and repulsive features, she shuddered, for she was convinced that no lofty characteristics could be hid behind so foul an exterior. As she was thinking of these things the while, she debated the wisdom of uncovering the baby's face. There came a little grunt from the wee bundle in her lap, and then a gurgling coo that set her heart in raptures. The baby was awake. Now she might feast her eyes upon him. Quickly she snatched the blanket from before the infant's face. Anderson was looking at her as she did so. He saw her stagger to her feet, holding the baby at arm's length from her, her eyes glued in horror upon the little chubby face and twinkling eyes. Then he heard her piteous cry as her knees gave beneath her, and she sank to the ground in a swoon. We'll return with Chapter 10, right after these sponsor messages. We return now with Chapter 10, the Swede, from the point of view now, of Tarzan. As the warriors, clustered thick about Tarzan and Sheeta, realized that it was a flesh-and-blood panther that had interrupted their dance of death, they took heart a trifle, 
"'for in the face of all those circling spears "'even the mighty Sheeta would be doomed.' Rokoff was urging the chief to have his spearmen launch their missiles, and the chief was upon the instant of issuing the command when his eyes strayed beyond Tarzan, following the gaze of the ape-man. With a yell of terror, the chief turned and fled toward the village gate, and as his people looked to see the cause of his fright, they too took to their heels, for there, lumbering down upon them, their huge forms exaggerated by the play of moonlight and campfire, came the hideous apes of Akut. The instant the natives turned to flee, the ape-man's savage cry rang out above the shrieks of the natives, and in answer to it, Sheeta and the apes leaped growling after the fugitives. Some of the warriors turned to battle with their enraged antagonist, but before the fiendish ferocity of the fierce beasts, they went down to their bloody deaths. Others were dragged down in their flight, and it was not until the village was empty and the last of the natives had disappeared into the bush that Tarzan was able to recall his savage pack to his side. Then it was that he discovered to his chagrin that he could not make one of them, not even the comparatively intelligent Akut, understand that he wished to be freed from the bonds that held him to the stake. In time, of course, the idea would filter through their thick skulls, but in the meanwhile many things might happen. The natives might return in force to regain their village. The whites might readily pick them all off with their rifles from the surrounding trees. He might even starve to death before the dull-witted apes realized that he wished them to gnaw through his bonds. As for Sheeta, the great cat understood even less than the apes. But yet Tarzan could not but marvel at the remarkable characteristics this beast had evidenced. That it felt real affection for him there seemed little doubt, for now that the natives were disposed of, it walked slowly back and forth about the stake, rubbing its sides against the ape-man's legs and purring like a contented tabby. That it had gone of its own volition to bring the balance of the pack to his rescue, Tarzan could not doubt. His Sheeta was indeed a jewel among beasts. Mugambi's absence worried the ape-man not a little. He attempted to learn from Akut what had become of the native, fearing that the beasts, freed from the restraint of Tarzan's presence, might have fallen upon the man and devoured him. But to all his questions, the great ape but pointed back in the direction from which they had come out of the jungle. The night passed with Tarzan still fast bound to the stake, and shortly after dawn his fears were realized in the discovery of naked figures moving stealthily just within the edge of the jungle about the village. The natives were returning. With daylight their courage would be equal to the demands of a charge upon the handful of beasts that had routed them from their rightful abodes. The result of the encounter seemed foregone if the savages could curb their superstitious terror, for against their overwhelming numbers, their long spears and poisoned arrows, the panther and the apes could not be expected to survive a really determined attack. That the natives were preparing for a charge became apparent a few moments later, when they commenced to show themselves in force upon the edge of the clearing, dancing and jumping about as they waved their spears and shouted taunts and fierce war cries toward the village. These maneuvers Tarzan knew would continue until the natives had worked themselves into a state of hysterical courage sufficient to sustain them for a short charge toward the village, and even though he doubted that they would reach it the first attempt, he believed that at the second, or the third, they would swarm to the gateway, when the outcome could not be aught than the extermination of Tarzan's bold but unarmed and undisciplined defenders. Even as he had guessed, the first charge carried the howling warriors but a short distance into the open, a shrill, weird challenge from the ape-man being all that was necessary to send them scurrying back to the bush. For half an hour they pranced and yelled their courage to the sticking point, and again essayed a charge. This time they came quite to the village gate, but when Sheeta and the hideous apes leaped among them they turned screaming in terror, and again fled to the jungle. Again was the dancing and shouting repeated. 
This time Tarzan felt no doubt that they would enter the village and complete the work that a handful of determined men would have carried to a successful conclusion at the first attempt. To have rescue come so close, only to be thwarted because he could not make his poor, savage friends understand precisely what he wanted of them, was most irritating, but he could not find it in his heart to place blame upon them. They had done their best, and now he was sure they would doubtless remain to die with him in a fruitless effort to defend him. The natives were already preparing for the charge. A few individuals had advanced a short distance toward the village and were exhorting the others to follow them. In a moment, the whole savage horde would be racing across the clearing. Tarzan thought only of the little child somewhere in this cruel, relentless wilderness. His heart ached for the son that he might no longer seek to save. That and the realization of Jane's suffering were all that weighed upon his brave spirit in these that he thought his last moments of life. Sakur, all that he could hope for, had come to him in the instant of his extremity, and failed. There was nothing further for which to hope. The natives were halfway across the clearing when Tarzan's attention was attracted by the actions of one of the apes. The beast was glaring toward one of the huts. Tarzan followed his gaze. To his infinite relief and delight, he saw the stalwart form of Mugambi racing toward him. The huge native was panting heavily as though from strenuous physical exertion and nervous excitement. He rushed to Tarzan's side, and as the first of the savages reached the village gate, the native's knife severed the last of the cords that bound Tarzan to the stake. In the street lay the corpses of the savages that had fallen before the pack the night before. From one of these Tarzan seized a spear and knobstick, and with Mugambi at his side and the starling pack about him, he met the natives as they poured through the gate. Fierce and terrible was the battle that ensued, but at last the savages were routed, more by terror, perhaps, at the sight of a black man and a white, biting in company with a panther and the huge fierce apes of Akut, than because of their inability to overcome the relatively small force that opposed them. One prisoner fell into the hands of Tarzan, and him the ape-man questioned in an effort to learn what had become of Rokoff and his party. Promised his liberty in return for the information, the native told all he knew concerning the movements of the Russian. It seemed that early in the morning their chief had attempted to prevail upon the whites to return with him to the village, and with their guns destroy the ferocious pack that had taken possession of it. But Rokoff appeared to entertain even more fears of the giant white man and his strange companions than even the blacks themselves. Upon no conditions would he consent to returning even within sight of the village. Instead, he took his party hurriedly to the river, where they stole a number of canoes that the natives had hidden there. The last that had been seen of them, they had been paddling strongly upstream, their porters from Kaviri's village wielding the blades. So once more Tarzan of the apes, with his hideous pack, took up his search for the ape-man's son and the pursuit of his abductor. For weary days they followed through an almost uninhabited country, only to learn at last that they were upon the wrong trail. The little band had been reduced by three, for three of Akut's apes had fallen in the fighting at the village. Now, with Akut, there were five great apes, and Sheeta was there, and Mugambi, and Tarzan. The ape-man no longer heard rumors even of the three who had preceded Rokoff, the white man and the woman and the child. Who the man and woman were he could not guess, but that the child was his was enough to keep him hot upon the trail. He was sure that Rokoff would be following this trio, and so he felt confident that so long as he could keep upon the Russian's trail, he would be winning so much nearer to the time he might snatch his son from the dangers and horrors that menaced him. In retracing their way after losing Rokoff's trail, Tarzan picked it up again at a point where the Russian had left the river and taken to the brush in a northerly direction. 
"'He could only account for this change "'on the ground that the child had been carried "'away from the river by the two "'who now had possession of it. "'Nowhere along the way, however, "'could he gain definite information "'that might assure him positively "'that the child was ahead of him. "'Not a single native they questioned "'had seen or heard of this other party, "'though nearly all had had direct experience "'with the Russian or had talked with others who had. "'It was with difficulty that Tarzan "'could find means to communicate with the natives.' "'as the moment their eyes fell upon his companions, "'they fled precipitately into the bush. "'His only alternative was to go ahead of his pack "'and waylay an occasional warrior "'whom he found alone in the jungle. "'One day, as he was thus engaged, "'tracking an unsuspecting savage, "'he came upon the fellow in the act of hurling a spear "'at a wounded white man "'who crouched in a clump of bush at the trail's side. "'The white was one whom Tarzan had often seen "'and whom he recognized at once. "'Deep in his memory was implanted those repulsive features,' the close-set eyes, the shifty expression, the drooping yellow mustache. Instantly it occurred to the ape-man that this fellow had not been among those who would accompany Rokoff at the village where Tarzan had been a prisoner. He had seen them all, and this fellow had not been there. There could be but one explanation. He it was who had fled ahead of the Russian with the woman and the child, and the woman had been Jane Clayton. He was sure now of the meaning of Rokoff's words. The ape-man's face went white as he looked upon the pasty, vice-marked countenance of the Swede. Across Tarzan's forehead stood out a broad band of scarlet that marked the scar where, years before, Turkoz had torn a great strip of the ape-man's scalp from his skull in the, in the fierce battle in which Tarzan had sustained his fitness to the kingship of the apes of Kerchak. This man was his prey. The black should not have him, and with that thought he leaped upon the warrior, striking down the spear before he could reach its mark. The native, whipping out his knife, turned to do battle with his new enemy, while the Swede, lying in the bush, witnessed a duel, the like of which he had never dreamed to see, a half-naked white man battling with a half-naked black, hand-to-hand with the crude weapons of primeval man at first, and then with hands and teeth like the primordial brutes from whose loins their forebears sprung. For a time Anderson did not recognize the white, and when at last it dawned upon him that he had seen this giant before, his eyes went wide in surprise that this growling, rending beast could ever have been the well-groomed English gentleman who had been a prisoner aboard the Kincaid. An English nobleman! He had learned the identity of the Kincaid's prisoners from Lady Greystoke during their flight up the Ugambi. Before, in common with the other members of the crew of the steamer, he had not known who the two might be. The fight was over. Tarzan had been compelled to kill his antagonist, as the fellow would not surrender. The Swede saw the white man leap to his feet beside the corpse of his foe, and placing one foot upon the broken neck, lift his voice in the hideous challenge of the victorious bull ape. Anderson shuddered. Then Tarzan turned toward him. His face was cold and cruel, and in the gray eyes the Swede read murder. "'Where is my wife?' growled the ape-man. "'Where is the child?' Anderson tried to reply, but a sudden fit of coughing choked him. There was an arrow entirely through his chest, and as he coughed, the blood from his wounded lung poured suddenly from his mouth and nostrils. Tarzan stood waiting for the paroxysm to pass. Like a bronze image, cold, hard, and relentless, he stood over the helpless man, waiting to wring such information from him as he needed, and then to kill. Presently the coughing and hemorrhage ceased, and again the wounded man tried to speak. Tarzan knelt near the faintly moving lips. "'The wife and child.' "'He repeated. "'Where are they?' "'Anderson pointed up the trail. "'The Russian. "'He's got them. 
he whispered. "'How did you come here?' continued Tarzan. "'Why are you not with Rokoff?' "'They catch us, they catch us,' replied Anderson, in a voice so low that the ape-man could just distinguish the words. "'They catch us. Ape fight, I fight, but my men, they all run away. Then they get me when I been wounded. Rokoff say he leave me here for the hyenas. That was worse than to kill. He take your wife and kid.' "'What were you doing with them? "'Where were you taking them?' asked Tarzan, "'and then fiercely, leaping close to the fellow "'with fierce eyes blazing with the passion of hate and vengeance "'that he had with difficulty controlled. "'What harm did you do to my wife or child? "'Speak quick before I kill you. "'Make your peace with God. "'Tell me the worst, or I will tear you to pieces "'with my hands and teeth. "'You have seen that I can do it.' "'A look of wide-eyed surprise overspread Anderson's face. "'Vai, vai,' he whispered. I did not hurt them. I tried to save them from that Russian. Your wife was kind to me on the Kincaid, and I hear that little baby cry sometimes. I got the wife and kid for my own by Christiana, and I couldn't bear for to see them separated and in Rokoff's hands any more. That was all. Do I look like I've been here to hurt them? He continued after a pause, pointing to the arrow protruding from his breast. There was something in the man's tone and expression that convinced Tarzan of the truth of his assertions. More weighty than anything else was the fact that Anderson evidently seemed more hurt than frightened. He knew he was going to die, so Tarzan's threats had little effect upon him, but it was quite apparent that he wished the Englishman to know the truth and not to wrong him by harboring the belief that his words and manner indicated that he had entertained. The ape-man instantly dropped to his knees beside the Swede. "'I'm sorry,' he said very simply. I had looked for none but knaves in company with Rokoff. I see that I was wrong. That is past now, and we will drop it for the more important matter of getting you to a place of comfort and looking after your wounds. We must have you on your feet again as soon as possible. The Swede, smiling, shook his head. You go on and look for wife and kid, he said. I've been as good as dead already. But, he hesitated, I hate to think of the hyenas. "'Won't you finish up the job?' Tarzan shuddered. A moment ago he had been upon the point of killing this man. Now he could no more have taken his life than he could have taken the life of any of his best friends. He lifted the Swede's head in his arms to change and ease his position. Again came a fit of coughing and a terrible hemorrhage. After it was over, Anderson lay with closed eyes. Tarzan thought that he was dead, until he suddenly raised his eyes to those of the ape-man, sighed and spoke, in a very low, weak whisper. "'I thank you blow party soon, party hard,' he said. And then he died. Join us next week Sunday night at 6.30 p.m. for chapters 11 and 12 of The Beasts of Tarzan. Thank you so much for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. We appreciate reviews very much, so if you could take a few minutes, especially you Apple listeners, and leave us a review, we would appreciate it and it helps new listeners find us. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be back soon.